Hey, it's Jen. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly developing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. For the latest news, tune into your public radio station and follow updates at npr.org. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. The Supreme Court is in the news this week, and it's not all positive headlines. After 24 hours of questioning over the span of two days, all that's left for Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson is a confirmation vote. And with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin now saying he will vote to confirm, the Republicans' path to blocking her bid is narrower than ever. Plus, a new variant shows up in the U.S., prompting fears of another surge, and a series of state-level bills target trans kids, abortion, and more ahead of this year's midterms. There's a lot to get to. So let's jump in. Anita Kumar is with us. She's the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. Anita, welcome. Great to be back with you. Shane Harris is also with us. He covers intelligence and national security for The Washington Post. Shane, always great to have you on. Thanks, Jen. And joining me in studio, Cheryl Gay-Stolberg, a Washington correspondent covering health policy for The New York Times. Cheryl, it's great to see you. Thanks. It's so great to be here in studio. So before we unpack the Supreme Court hearings from this week, a big scoop from the Washington Post could cast a shadow over the court itself. Conservative activist Jenny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, repeatedly urged former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to overturn the 2020 election. Thomas sent a barrage of texts to Meadows in the weeks right after the election, pushing him to, quote, release the Kraken and save us from the left, end quote. Now, Shane, the Supreme Court's favorability has dropped 15 percentage points over the last three years. You now have a justice whose wife was pushing the Trump administration to overturn an election during roughly the same time frame in which the court may have been asked to rule on that election's validity. How will these texts further erode trust in the court itself? Oh, I think they could considerably. I think that in the mind particular of people on the left uh, will feel that this is maybe not just a view that Ginny Thomas shares that she doesn't share with her husband, even though she said they don't talk about their work. But it will raise all kinds of questions uh, about whether he shares these views. Uh, and there's been reporting, notably by Jane Mayer in The New Yorker, that I'd recommend to people, raising questions about whether Ginny Thomas has used her access and influence in conservative circles to get issues and cases and matters before the court, where, of course, her husband would be one of the nine justices deciding on them. I also think it's important to note that this is a very interesting window into the thinking of both a mainstream, you know, kind of more main, mainstay conservative activist like Jenny Thomas, who's been around for a long time, talking to the White House chief of staff, who is not disagreeing with her when she brings up, frankly, these just absurd ideas about conspiracy theories involving the CIA and watermarked ballots and just genuinely, frankly, nutty theories that have been that have no basis in reality. This is something that she appears to believe and that the White House chief of staff is at least not objecting to in the moment. And, and you know, I don't, I don't think that these can be portrayed as fringe ideas. I mean, Jenny Thomas is somebody who, as we said, has been around for a long time. I think this is an illustration of how uh, a lot of conservative actors view what happened in the election, and it's just it's not tethered to reality. Anita, could this impact Clarence Thomas? Well, as you as you know, he has this lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court. I think what it could do, though, is 
um, as Shane just said, talk about, you know, put, sort of put the pressure on him. There are going to be more people that are skeptical of him because of this, even though, uh, you know, Jenny Thomas says she does not speak to her husband about these issues. And of course, there are going to be people looking at some of the future cases and, and the past cases that he's uh, weighed in on. Um, if you'll remember, the Supreme Court weighed in on whether President Trump had to turn over um, his records to the House committee that's looking into the January 6th attacks. And if you'll remember, the Supreme Court turned down that request by President Trump. But Justice Thomas was the only one who said he disagreed with that decision. He didn't go into detail about why, but he was notably the only one. So I think, uh, you know, those type of cases and future cases that will come up are going to get even more uh, scrutiny because of because of what's happened. Well, let's move on to the Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson hearings, which wrapped up on Thursday. If I am confirmed, I commit to you that I will work productively to support and defend the Constitution and this grand experiment of American democracy that has endured over these past 246 years. I have been a judge for nearly a decade now, and I take that responsibility and my duty to be independent very seriously. If confirmed, Judge Jackson would become the first black woman to serve on the high court. The Senate Judiciary Committee is slated to vote on her confirmation April 4th, and Democrats reportedly want it to head to a full vote by April 8th. Cheryl, what were some of your big takeaways from the hearings? Well, I think that, frankly, we didn't really learn anything new about Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson's judicial philosophy or how she might approach um, being a Supreme Court justice. And that was not entirely through her own fault. I mean, she was reserved about answering questions about matters that might come before the court. But if you look at the way the hearings were conducted, what we saw was a lot of speechifying, frankly, a lot of grievances on the part of Republicans that had nothing to do with Supreme Court matters, Ted Cruz holding up a book about racist babies and Marsha Blackburn grilling the would-be justice about, you know, what is a woman and a number of senators, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley, grilling her on um, her rulings on child pornography cases, trying to portray her as soft on crime. And on the Democratic side... Um, we saw speechifying too. And notably that moment, the speech really that Cory Booker delivered, which frankly was very, very moving. He spoke for about 30 minutes about just the significance of reaching this moment of having a black woman being nominated to the Supreme Court. And he said to her, I can, I look at you and I see my mother. And you could see she was wiping tears from her eyes. And it was I think that, frankly, is is the moment that is going to be remembered from these hearings. Now, Cheryl, as you said, during these hearings, many GOP lawmakers use their questions to nod at their conservative base. Do you interpret Justice Ginsburg's meaning of men and women as male and female? I want to try to understand here, is it your view that society is too hard on sex offenders? Do you agree with Miss Hannah Jones that one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare independence is because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. Those were clips from Republican Senators Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Josh Hawley of Missouri, and Ted Cruz of Texas. Judge Jackson also had contentious exchanges with Republican Senator Lindsey Graham about her faith and Senator Tom Cotton about policing. Shane, what were some of the deeper political dynamics at play throughout these hearings? 
Well, I think that you saw many of these senators auditioning some talking points for the campaign when they might run in 2024. Um, they were returning, obviously, to some, you know, some kind of key touchstone points now in, in the culture wars, broadly speaking, uh, that Republicans have gravitated to, that their base cares a lot about. And I don't think that they ever had any doubt that Judge Jackson was likely to be confirmed. There wasn't really any kind of erosion of support in the Democratic Party for her, even though we should note three Republican senators voted for her previously to confirm her to the D.C. Court of Appeals. Um, But I think that they use this opportunity to sort of solidify their bona fides on these issues and to create questions and doubts about whether or not she could be an impartial justice, going back to the question of, you know, the credibility of the court. Uh, I think, you know, both sides might be willing to try to undermine, frankly, credibility in the court when it suits their political interests. So there was a lot of theater here, but I think a lot of the kind of uh, the trying out and the rehearsal for what you're going to hear from some of these people, presumably on the campus campaign trail in a few years, and probably during the midterms. Now, Anita, it's not unusual for Supreme Court hearings to be contentious, but how much of what we saw this week is a result of our current political climate? Well, I think it's definitely part of that. And and it's not just this hearing. Of course, we saw this with Brett Kavanaugh and some of the other recent uh, confirmation hearings uh, for Supreme Court, but for also for other uh, confirmations that the Senate that the Senate has to go through. I mean, I think the the important thing here is sort of did this change anyone's mind? And it really doesn't sound like it did. You know, Democrats are pretty confident that they have uh, you know all the support of the of the fifty senators, and of course, fifty Democratic senators, and the vice president can break that tie. We don't know if this changed any mind of Republicans, but. Pretty much going in, though they don't say this, most of them have kind of made up their mind, right? We didn't learn a lot of new things about her. Um, everybody got to ask her the, their questions, but we kind of end up exactly where we were. As Shane mentioned, three Republicans had voted for her confirmation before. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they get any of those Republicans or anyone else. Uh, the president has been very vocal uh, about wanting Republican support. He really wants this to be bipartisan. And increasingly, as the years go on, it just becomes more partisan, um, and of course, this is the biggest confirmation that, that the Senate has. So uh, we see it magnified for these Senate confirmation hearings. And Jane, I'm curious as you watched what you took away from from what I came away with as as a disconnect in in understanding what Congress does and what the judiciary does. Hmm. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I, I guess it's it's they seem to be looking at Judge Jackson as if she were a policymaker and a lawmaker, as opposed to somebody who is there to kind of implement the law. Um, I thought this came through, or, or at least you know, to, to ensure that it's being implemented fairly, I thought this came through a lot in the questioning of her um, decision to sentence people who had been convicted of child sex abuse crimes or complicity in things like child porn to sentences that were lower than uh, sometimes the recommended upper edge of the sentencing guidelines. And she turned that back around and said, look, Congress had given instructions to the federal judiciary to, in some cases, give these cases downward departures. So she was essentially saying, you guys made the laws. I'm here following what you said you wanted us to do when I exercised my discretion as a judge to sentence people. So there was a bit of a disconnect 
point there. And I thought that Republicans tried to sort of, you know, almost blame her for, you know, softness in laws that they themselves had enacted. Well, just a quick note, the three Republican senators who voted to confirm her earlier are Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, and Susan Collins of Maine. We're rounding up the week's news with Politico's Anita Kumar, Shane Harris of The Washington Post, and Cheryl Gay Stolberg for The New York Times. And remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. President Biden traveled to Europe this week for an emergency summit in Brussels. All 30 global leaders of NATO met to talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Biden and other Western allies pledged more sanctions on Russia as leaders tried to prevent the month-long conflict from escalating further. After the meeting with NATO and G7 leaders, Biden held a press conference about further actions. Do you think uh, that Russia needs to be removed from the G20? On the latter point, my answer is yes. That depends on the G20. Um, I, that, that was raised today. And uh, I raised the possibility if that can't be done, if Indonesia and others do not agree, then we should, in my view, ask to have both uh, um, Ukraine uh, be able to attend the meetings as well as uh, um, basically Ukraine being able to attend the G20 meeting and observe. Anita, critics have accused NATO of not doing enough to force Russia out of Ukraine. What did this visit accomplish? Well, I think partly it was a message that the United States and and other leaders are are trying to do more. It's been frustrating uh, for a lot of them to see that all the sanctions and economic uh, restrictions they've been putting on Russia really hasn't deterred them, not yet anyway, um, and that, that, that these, uh, you know, these battles are continuing. So uh, President Biden and others talked about uh, additional sanctions, as you mentioned, on uh, the lower body of par- uh, members of the lower body of parliament in Russia and some other companies. They talked about trying to help wean Europe from its dependence on Russian oil and gas, which is uh, very important. It's something the United States that said it would help Europe do, but it's something that Europe, European countries have found difficult. And of course, as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the president's going to be traveling to Poland to talk about the refugee crisis, which uh, has has become sort of extraordinary. If you see the numbers of refugees now leaving Ukraine is 3.5 million. So the United States has said it would welcome up to 100,000 Ukrainians and others um, in the United States. Now, Shane, President Biden is expected to announce new sanctions on Russia. What more do we know? Well, we're going to see sanctions, I think, probably aimed at members of the Russian parliament. Uh, That's been kind of proposed. The UK is actually also going to be doing sanctions against um, Russian hacking groups. And and so far, what you've heard is, you know, sanction, sanction, sanction. And if this theme sounds familiar, it's because it's one of the only tools in the kit that the U.S. and its allies have to turn to right now, because, of course, they're not putting troops on the ground in Ukraine. There's not going to be a NATO-enforced no-fly zone. And I think one of the things that this meeting of, of of these world leaders demonstrated is that practically speaking, there's not a whole lot more they can do to try and change Russian behavior. Uh, And so far, nothing is really uh, deterring them. President Biden got quite animated in response to a question about why aren't these sanctions deterring? And he said, they're never meant to deter. Well, of course, they are meant to change Russia's behavior uh, and to try and punish them and force them to change course. That just isn't happening yet. What's really been the most remarkable thing on the ground to see, of course, is the Ukrainians, you know, 
possibly even taking back territory that Russia had seized. So we're kind of in this stalemate period right now where uh, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot more that European and American leaders are willing to do. I think that could change if you start to see things like the use of chemical weapons by Russian forces. President Biden indicated that there would be some kind of uh, response to that. So as the situation for civilians worsens in Ukraine, that pressure is going to grow for for the West to do more than just sanctions. Well, speaking of civilians in Ukraine, nearly 4 million people have left the country and over 6 million are displaced inside its borders. As Anita said, President Biden announced yesterday that the U.S. will accept up to 100,000 refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine. Cheryl, what kind of effect does this, this displacement have within Ukraine and in neighboring countries? I think this is a... It, it is a profound effect. I think this effect, the effect is going to last for years, if not decades to come. We are basically seeing an exodus from Ukraine. This places a burden on European countries, mostly European countries who are accepting Ukrainians in, uh, trying to support them, getting children in school, getting parents employed, connecting families with one another, those who have been uh, separated. And we saw President Biden say he would accept up to 100,000 refugees. I mean, if you think about the numbers, I think Anita mentioned 3.5 million refugees. 100,000, frankly, is not really very much. Um, The president announced a billion more in humanitarian aid um, for these refugees. But I think this is, apart from just the humanitarian crisis, it also possibly could be a health crisis. Anytime we see a grave displacement of people, we see health effects, especially in a pandemic. So um, there's a lot of work to do. And and, and Anita, when we talk about that displacement within Ukraine, is the country in any position at all right now to respond to that? It doesn't sound like they really are. I mean, you know, their their focus obviously is is fighting Russia. And you see, you saw the president of Ukraine recently talking to Congress, the United States Congress. He's been talking to world leaders and basically, uh, you know, first and foremost, pleading for further help um, from these other countries. Uh, you you heard him saying, talking more about sort of fighting Russia. Send us weapons. Uh, you know, bring people over here. Help us fight Russia so that we can uh, get this country back. So that's his, been his number one priority. And you haven't seen the United States and some of these other countries really uh, give in and say that they're going to give the weapons and other things that the president wants. Well, before leaving for Europe, Biden told U.S. companies operating in Russia to strengthen their defenses against cyber attacks. And Shane, this was apparently based on intelligence the administration received. We know Russia is known for using cyber attacks as part of their playbook. How much damage could be done through these types of attacks? Well, we have actually seen the Russians use the cyber attacks on critical infrastructure in other countries to shut off electricity, uh, to cause significant uh, economic damage to companies that are their targets. And the backdrop for this is that before the invasion began, U.S. officials were, were genuinely concerned that Russia would retaliate against the United States for issuing sanctions by launching cyber attacks in the United States. And, and, and while that can cause a lot of problems for the companies and potentially a lot of cut problems for customers, It's important to remember, too, that an attack on critical infrastructure, something really important like a banking system or an electrical system, the United States government would 
potentially regard that as an act of a hostile attack, which would then precipitate some kind of response by the United States, maybe only in cyberspace on a Russian system. But it's this kind of, we hear this word escalation and escalatory actions. This is something that U.S. officials have been afraid that would almost, in a way, kind of draw the United States into the conflict more directly if Russia started launching those attacks in the U.S. So far, we haven't seen it, but FBI Director Christopher Wray said Tuesday uh, that there was evidence that uh, Uh, Some of these Russian hackers had been scanning and probing various systems, which is the kind of activity you see uh, that precipitates an attack on those networks. We got this tweet from Fix who asks, what does Biden mean when he says chemical weapons will be met with a response? And we should say Biden told reporters at NATO headquarters that, quote, it would trigger a response in kind. So, Shane, give us some context here. Yeah, it's not entirely clear what the president means by that. And that's a very good question. So there have been these longstanding concerns now, I should watch this longstanding for several weeks, really, that the Russians may be preparing to use chemical weapons uh, on civilians uh, there in Ukraine. Uh, and of course, you know, famously, President Obama in 2014 drew a red line at the use of chemical weapons by Syria against its own people that he said would precipitate a response. There really wasn't the kind of response I think a lot of people wanted to see. So now here we have, again, President Biden saying, if the Russians go to the extent of using these weapons, which are seen as uh, uh, more severe, as more harmful than traditional weapons, that there will be some response. What will that be, though? Because he has already said, we're not putting troops on the ground. We're not going to enforce a no-fly zone. So he didn't really give an indication. Does he mean an active military response? Or does he mean just more sanctions? Uh, And if it's the latter, arguably that's not going to deter Vladimir Putin. A lot of people are getting frustrated. A lot of experts I talked to with the administration for sort of speaking out loud what the red lines are and would really like to see the administration exercise more ambiguity uh, in their policy right now to kind of keep Russia guessing because they feel that if you start drawing lines, Russia is just going to walk right up to them. Well, that leads us to this email we got from Catherine who asks, what will have to happen to show us the war in Ukraine has reached a turning point? And I'm not sure exactly what type of turning point Catherine is asking about there, Shane, but what are you watching for specifically? I've always been watching since the beginning of this conflict of what happens when the civilian casualties just start to become so intense and the shelling of these cities and the leveling of these cities becomes so graphic and vivid that it builds a sense in the populations of European countries and in America that we're standing by and watching a massacre. Now, arguably, that is already happening. But I think that if chemical weapons come into play, if you start seeing uh, the cities basically, you know, under these kind of medieval-like sieges and children are dying, that is already happening, by the way, but the more those pictures come out, I think that there could become such a sense of outrage in the public and a demand growing on their leaders to do more. That could become a kind of a turning point. And if it is something like a chemical attack, the images of that will be horrific. And and, and we've seen images like that again in Syria. The world sort of stood by on that one as well. Um, But here this is in Europe. Uh, This is a, a Ukraine feels much more familiar, I think, to a Western audience. And so I think that as the images of graphic violence and destruction grow, that could create a kind of a turning point. Well, before we move on from foreign policy, we remember Madeleine Albright, the first woman to serve as Secretary of State, died this week at the age of 84. Albright had a long career in foreign policy, championing the expansion of NATO. She was also a refugee. As a child, she fled the Nazis in her home country of Czechoslovakia. In 2019, 180 sat down in front of a live audience with the former Secretary of State to talk about the state of our democracy. Elections don't happen by accident. 
They require people to be interested in what the issues are, and they require people to go and vote. Uh, that is one of the major aspects. And so obviously on my to-do list is, what is it that we do to inform ourselves about the issues? And I hate to say this, but I think the debates where you're asked to raise your hand, whether you think there should be um, a health program, is a little simplistic. And so I think what we need to do is to make an effort to understand the issues better, to not be afraid to talk to people with whom we disagree, to find out why they might not want to do it that particular way. But I do think we need to, democracies don't work if people don't vote. Madeleine Albright was 84. Well, let's move on to COVID. This week, the Biden administration announced that it has exhausted funds to purchase fourth doses of COVID vaccines for Americans. And this comes as a new variant, BA2, is taking hold in the U.S. Cheryl, just explain how the administration found itself here running out of money. Well, the administration has been asking Congress for $22.5 billion in emergency aid to buy more therapeutics and vaccines and tests, etc., that money was scaled down by Congress to $15.6 billion, which was then included in that massive spending bill that passed a couple of weeks ago that had aid to Ukraine in it. Um, but Republicans were insisting that that $15 billion be paid for by other programs. There was a proposal on the table to take some of that money away from the states. Governors balked and the whole thing collapsed. The spending bill passed without the COVID aid in it, and now the Biden administration finds itself in this situation where it is effectively out of money. Uh, It has enough money, administration officials say, to provide vaccines for people older than 65 and for children. But should the FDA recommend a fourth dose for all Americans, there's simply not money for that. And Basically, the White House and congressional Republicans are duking it out now, trying to come up with some agreement. We're seeing some possible movement, um, but still no money. Well, and of course, this is happening as new CDC data shows the BA2 subvariant of Omicron now makes up more than 30 percent of new COVID cases in the U.S. Cheryl, what do we know about BA2 and how likely it is to cause another surge? So BA2 is a subvariant of Omicron, and it is more transmissible than the original Omicron variant. And it is already causing surges in Europe, in the UK, and in Asia. What we don't know is whether or not that is going to be a serious problem, because there's so far no evidence that BA2 is causing any more severe disease than the original BA1 subvariant. So we're just kind of waiting and watching. I talked to Dr. Fauci about that this week. He says he's especially watching what happens in the UK, because the UK's population is very similar to ours in terms of immunity, both vaccine-induced and natural immunity. They are seeing more cases there, but I don't think they're seeing a surge in hospitalizations. And that's what would be most worrisome. So that's what to keep an eye out for. But does this also raise additional concerns for people who are immunocompromised, especially as we see mask uh, mandates and other restrictions being rolled back? Absolutely. Um, Immunocompromised people are very, very concerned. These are folks who don't produce an antibody response to the vaccine or maybe can't be vaccinated at all. And right now with mask mandates lifting, 
they have what what experts are calling one-way protection. Um, if we're all wearing masks, if I'm wearing a mask and you are, we're both protecting ourselves and one another. But if only one of us is wearing a mask, that's just that one person who is especially vulnerable trying to protect him or herself. So it is very concerning to immunocompromised people. Well, before we go to the break, Moderna released data on its low-dose pediatric vaccine this week. The company's CEO said it now plans to ask the FDA to grant emergency use authorization for its vaccine for children under six as soon as possible. Briefly, Cheryl, what does the data tell us about the efficacy of this vaccine? The data is not really that compelling. Um, The company said the vaccine provided about 44%, proved 44% effective in preventing symptomatic illness in young children, the youngest children, six months to two years old, and a little less effective in preventing symptomatic illness in children ages two through five. So I think even if the FDA authorizes this There will be a lot of debate among parents about whether or not to give their children. We're rounding up some of the week's biggest news. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think. Tweet us at 1A. We'll be back with more after the break. You're listening to the News Roundup. Let's get back to the conversation. Let's turn to a hot button issue that may not be the the top story in the news, but it is the top story in our wallets, the economy. In a speech to the National Association for Business Economics, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell laid out his plan to combat inflation, raising interest rates half a percentage point. Anita, how big of a raise is that? Yeah, it's uh, it's just the first step. Um, they have talked about, the Federal Reserve has talked about six more increases by the year's end. So I think in the totality, it's going to be significant. This is something that the Federal Reserve Chairman has talked about repeatedly in recent weeks and months, saying that we absolutely need to do this to help with inflation and these rising costs that people are seeing you know, really all over the place. Um, this is, we've seen shipping problems and we've seen uh, shortages of things. And so to to deal with all of this inflation problem uh, that stemmed from the high demand, the supply chain backlogs, the pandemic, now what's happening in Ukraine, he's starting the United States on this path. Um, it's something that we should expect over the coming years. So what kind of difference will, will we feel on a day-to-day basis as they make these incremental changes? Yeah, so it's it's things that Americans will feel uh, when they are borrowing money, basically, and uh, buying things. But what what the Federal Reserve Chairman is saying is that he hopes over time that some of these costs people are seeing, you know, when they go to the grocery store or to the gas pump, or will will. Uh, be lowered over these coming years. It's something that people will see. People have seen it over the last year. You've seen complaints about it. You've seen this become very political with Democrats and Republicans. Republicans saying that this is something that Joe Biden uh, caused. You see Joe Biden blaming uh, this situation in Ukraine. So uh, I think it's, you know, while we're talking about the Supreme Court and we're talking about what's happening in Ukraine, a lot of Americans are just noticing over this last year, these prices are really two years that the prices have really gone up and really want some help with that. Well, and Shane, what impact could this have on the economy, these incremental jumps? I mean, the hope is that this will ultimately tame inflation. 
and get inflation back under control, which has been really soaring out of control, uh, and, and kind of cool the economy down. You know, and there are people who, you know, notably Larry Summers, a former Treasury Secretary, who, who've criticized the Fed for not moving quickly enough to raise these interest rates and feeling like they need to move more aggressively and more quickly before, the, before inflation gets out of hand as well. So that is the hope here. I mean, this is one of the key tools that the, the Fed has to try and bring inflation under control uh, uh, before, you know, you get an even worse situation and possibly tip into a recession. So how will paying more on things like mortgages and, and credit card debt slow down inflation, Shane? I think the idea here, and I'm not an economist, <laughs> is that once you make it harder for people to borrow money, you kind of slow down the demand in the economy. And what's been driving the inflation over time is that we were all home during the pandemic and we were buying lots and lots of stuff. Uh, and the demand kind of surged. And there's also now, of course, we have supply chain problems where you can't get the things that you want. And these were all contributing factors to prices going up faster than the Fed would like to see them. So the hope here is by making it more expensive to borrow money and raising those rates, you kind of you know put a damper on the, on, on, on the inflation. That is the theory, at least. We're going to see if this works and also how markets respond to this. Also, the job market is very strong right now. And you kind of have this interesting combination where you have a strong job market and soaring inflation, those are not necessarily great things that go together in the minds of economists. So you might see unemployment tick back up as well when the interest rates go up. But that is all part of the Fed trying to get back to what they call kind of a neutral area where the economy is is not out of control when it comes to prices. Well, one place where people are really feeling the pinch is at the pump. Gas prices have skyrocketed since the Russian oil ban was implemented. In California, the average cost is roughly $6 a gallon. Lawmakers in the Golden State are proposing a $400 gas rebate, and Maryland and Georgia are putting a pause on their gas taxes. Cheryl, what impact will these measures have on the overall price of gas? Well, I think obviously it will bring the price down for consumers because anytime you're not paying a tax on on something, it's, it's cheaper for you. Um, I think that there's a political element to this, too, and especially thinking, frankly, from Joe Biden's perspective. I mean, this is gas prices are one of those things that are very easy for people to understand and grasp in a political campaign. And we're already seeing and we will see more Republicans hit Biden on, you know, the high price of gas. You're causing the high price of gas. And it is a burden to consumers. And it's especially a burden on um, on poorer people who um, may need to drive to work and have to, you know, they feel that money coming coming out of their pocket. So I think that it will be uh, noticeable. The question, though, is how long it will last. I believe that the Maryland uh, suspension is only for 30 days. So we'll have to see if Governor Larry Hogan, um, who's a Republican, renews that. It's interesting to me that uh, both the governors who imposed, who withdrew gas taxes uh, are Republican governors. The other is Brian Kemp in Georgia. Uh, Anita, how is the Biden administration framing this this jump in gas prices and where are they placing responsibility? Yeah, you've seen uh, President Biden actually blame Russia for this. But let's be clear, while that has contributed, what is happening in Ukraine has contributed, 
the the gas prices have been slowly going up, you know, for months now. Um, and so, uh, you know, as Cheryl mentioned, this has become a real political issue. This is something that Republicans hope that they can use um, in November in the elections, both in the states and also in the in Congress uh, in the midterm elections to say, look, uh, you know, we have Republicans in charge, we have Democrats in charge, and we have President Biden in charge, and things are are continuing to go up um, at the gas pump. So they hope to use that. They're already planning on using that. And and I will say, talking to Democrats, there are concerns about that. Concerns really on the economy and inflation and spending are, you know, sort of the top concerns that they realize, uh, you know, that the Democrats are really on the defensive about. There, there are efforts to suspend the federal gas tax, but that really hasn't gone, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of stalled in Congress. There are some Democrats that worry losing that revenue could cut into President Biden's, you know, signature infrastructure bill that had that had previously passed. And so sort of taking away one of those achievements uh, from the president or, or making it sort of not as as robust. So there's a lots of concerns here, both on Americans, but there's a lot of political concerns. Well, Shane, and I'm wondering how this moment is perhaps reshaping or, or pushing forward some conversations about the U.S.'s energy, proce- uh, energy policy, especially as it intersects with national security? Well, I think it is going to have a big impact on that. <clears throat> you saw Jamie Dimon, you know, a very powerful CEO this week, saying that the administration needed to move more aggressively uh, for pushing for production of more oil, calling for more liquefied natural gas facilities in Europe. A big part of the conflict in Ukraine uh, center, I, mean, well, I shouldn't say the conflict, but one of the big dynamics of the conflict in Ukraine is that Europe is highly dependent on Russia for energy sources, specifically also for natural gas, but also oil. And they need to look, and they are talking to their leaders, about decoupling their energy dependence from Russia and then framing that as a matter of their own security. Because if Russia has this powerful leverage via energy supplies <clears throat> over these countries, that could make them more aggressive. And it puts the European countries more on, on kind of a back foot and more of a defensive posture. So energy is, is a huge component of all of this kind of the geopolitics that we're talking about here. It's not just felt in the prices. It's we're talking about energy security, which also then impacts on climate change. I mean, countries are trying to move away from fossil fuels right now. But arguably, the situation with the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, at least in the near term, going to increase uh, countries' dependence on those sources of energy. Well, we got this question from Gus who tweets, how will increasing U.S. borrowing rates slow a global inflation problem? And Anita, again, I know you're not an economist either, but how do these questions fit into what's happening globally? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I'll just go back to what Shane said, which is, I, you know, the idea behind it, of course, is people will be uh, less able to, you know, the demand will go down. And so I don't really know how that impacts this globally because you have, of course, the White House and others saying, look, we really need to get some of this, the situation in Ukraine under control. That is impacting a lot of this. But I do think that we, you know, if you look at what's happened over the last couple years since the pandemic starts, it's clear that this was not just in the last month or so, right? There's a lot of what's been going on is what Shane mentioned, this this huge demand while we're all sitting at home. Uh, some of us still sitting at home um, during the pandemic, you know, buying things. So it's really designed at the simplest point to reduce that demand. 
I want to touch on one other issue. There were changes at the Securities and Exchange Commission this week. The SEC proposed a new rule that would require companies to disclose climate-related information. Anita, briefly, what is climate-related info, and, and will this make a difference when it comes to climate change? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see sort of, uh, you know, we've seen the Biden White House, but now we're seeing others, um, you know, sort of follow suit and try to, to, to look at this. Um, you know, each year, public companies in the U.S. are required to provide um, regulators with sort of detailed information about their financial performance. So what the Security and Exchange Commission is proposing is new rules that would require them to report on things like uh, greenhouse gas emissions, um, how much energy they use, how, um, you know, climate change and, and sort of catastrophes that come from climate change are affecting their business. Some companies have already started doing that, but this would, you know, they've been voluntarily doing this. This would sort of be a requirement uh, for the rules um, when they, both when they register, when a company registers as a public company, and then also in these annual filings that I mentioned. Well, let's turn to some state-level news. This week, two Republican governors bucked the party trend and vetoed legislation related to trans youth and sports. Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb and Utah Governor Spencer Cox both vetoed bills that would prevent trans women from participating in women's sport, citing a lack of evidence that it's a widespread problem. Utah Governor Spencer Cox spoke with a Fox affiliate and raised concerns about the bills spurring a rise in suicides. I want to say that we, we love you. Um, we care deeply about you. We need you to be okay. And, and we want to help you in any way possible. Shane, how could this issue impact the 2022 midterms? Well, this has become another flashpoint in the culture wars. And you saw, we've seen Republican lawmakers, particularly at the state level, kind of seizing on these attempts uh, to, to you know, push legislation on trans kids and on issues that, you know, that frankly, you know, I'm not sure really resonate with a wide majority of voters. But in primary elections, particularly in the midterms, these are going to become places where candidates are going to have to demonstrate their bona fides to the base of their party, which does care about pushing this legislation. I mean, you heard Governor Cox there with um, real emotion in his voice, worrying about what these kinds of bills will do to children uh, who are going through these experiences. Uh, But legislators in those states want to push these bills because they feel, I think, that the base cares about it. So it's become just a, a really deeply political issue and one where I think that lawmakers and other candidates feel that they have to stake out this kind of, uh, uh, you know, more pro-position if they're going to have credibility with their voters. Well, Cheryl, parents of children seeking gender-affirming care in Texas cannot be investigated for child abuse. This is after an appeals court reinstated a lower court's injunction. But advocates on the ground say hospitals, insurance companies, and pharmacies have already begun restricting access to treatment over legal fears. Remind us what's happening in Texas? So this stems from a declaration by the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, uh, who declared last month that it was, quote, child abuse to provide gender-affirming care to young people who are questioning their gender identity and who may um, want to transition. Uh, This sparked an executive order by the governor saying that parents of 
children, parents who provide or seek gender-affirming care for their children can be investigated. The ACL sued, and there's now, um, as you described, a lot of back and forth, which has created an incredible amount of uncertainty on the part of parents, but also medical providers. And I think we should really be clear that research has shown that Giving young people gender-affirming care helps reduce the risk of suicide and mental illness among those who um, are seeking to transition or who may want to transition. Uh, and this is not necessarily a sex change, quote-unquote, operation. Uh, it can be access to puberty blockers or gender-affirming hormones. And um, the ACLU argues this is the state intervening in private medical decisions. Well, Shane, I want to touch also on a new abortion law in Idaho that prevents women from having an abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. It allows family members of what it calls, quote, pre-born children to sue an abortion provider. And similar legislation has moved forward in Oklahoma's Republican-led House. Both are based on a recent Texas law. How successful has the Texas model been in restricting abortion access across the country? Well, arguably, it's going to be very successful, at least to the Supreme Court, overturning Roe v. Wade and allowing the states to go back and basically place even more restrictive measures on abortions or potentially create a kind of a patchwork system where some states you can get easier access and some states you can't. I thought it was notable that Governor Brad Little of of Idaho signed this new bill but said he supports the policy, but he fears that this mechanism was going to prove unconstitutional and unwise, he said. So sort of saying there, I'm signing this under duress, but I don't think this is going to hold up in court. Well, we'll have to leave the conversation there. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Washington Post. Anita Kumar is the senior editor of Standards and Ethics at Politico. And Cheryl Gay Stolberg is a Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Thanks to you all. 1A's audio engineer and sound designer is Mike Kidd. He gets technical assistance from Adrian Danhauser. Aileen Humphreys is the producer and editor of 1A On Demand. This is the News Roundup. We'll discuss the week's biggest headlines from around the world in just a moment. You're listening to 1A. This is the 1A Podcast. I'm Jen White, and you're listening to the News Roundup. And this is Alexander a shopkeeper in a small town in southern Ukraine who filmed himself taking on Russian soldiers. It was a colossal effort by the whole town, he says. We used hunting rifles, people threw bricks, old women loaded sandbags. The Russians didn't know where to look. I've never seen the community come together like that. That report is from the BBC's Andrew Harding. It and other reporting suggests that at least in some areas, some of the ground seized by the Russian military is being taken back. We'll talk more about that, plus all the news out of Europe where President Biden and other NATO leaders met for an emergency summit. Let's get to all of it with our panel. Our guests today are Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Dave, great to have you back. Great to be with you. Also with us, Indira Lakshmanan, Senior Executive Editor for National Geographic. Indira, welcome back. Nice to be here, Jen. And David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist. David, always a pleasure. Hello. Dave, as this war moves into its second month, what's the best assessment we have about where things stand right now in Ukraine? Sure. So the front lines across much of the country have been frozen for the past week or so. The offensive on Kyiv, the capital, uh, has stalled. 
uh, other major cities continue to hold out despite facing a pretty intense bombardment from the Russians. And that is something that's ticked up over the past week. The Russians are using more artillery and more airstrikes on urban areas. Uh, in the south of the country, and, and this uh, aligns with the footage you played at the beginning, we have actually seen uh, what we thought was going to be a Russian offensive toward Odessa in, on the southern coast be repulsed, be actually pushed backwards. Uh, but in the east of the country, there is some gradual progress on the Russian side, uh, and we think that they're attempting to basically surround a lot of Ukrainian forces in the east and cut them off from the rest of the country. And actually, we heard from the Russian defense ministry today that the first phase of their operation uh, is mostly complete now. Uh, again, this operation has not gone according to the plan that they had at the beginning, but they say it's mostly complete and they're focusing on the Donbass region in the east. So that is where they're having, if there's anywhere that they're still making some progress, it's in that eastern Donbass region. Well, Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby stopped short of confirming reports that certain towns and villages had been reclaimed. But on Wednesday, he told reporters that some trends were starting to emerge. We have seen indications that the Ukrainians are going a bit more on the offense now. They have been defending very smartly, very nimbly, very creatively in places that they believe are the right places to defend. And we have seen them now in places, particularly in the south, near Kherson, they have tried to regain territory. Indira, we know the Russian military has overwhelming force compared to Ukraine. Do we know enough at this stage to determine why the Russians have taken such heavy losses and and not moved in as quickly as everyone thought they would? Well, I think it's probably a surprise to Vladimir Putin um, and the Russian military that they haven't gone in and through this lightning strike seized Kiev and sort of brought Ukraine to heel really quickly. Um, at the same time, I think we need to be careful when we talk about overwhelming losses. We don't really know what they are. We do know that NATO officials, first a U.S. senior U.S. official, said some days ago that there was an estimate from U.S. intelligence that about 7,000 Russian troops had been killed in these four weeks of fighting. Now a senior NATO military official has said between 7,000 and 15,000 Russian troops. Now, if those numbers are correct, to put it in context... Um, for the listeners, in the entire 20-year U.S. war in Afghanistan, there were fewer than 2,500 U.S. soldiers killed. Um, Russia lost some 15,000 of its troops in Afghanistan in the 1980s, but over a decade of being there. So if these numbers are right, 7,000 to 15,000 Russian troops dead, um, that would be more than they lost also in two years in the Chechen conflict. So it seems to be very painful for them. And we're talking about tens of thousands of Russian troops estimated to be wounded or taken prisoner. There was a um, Russian government-affiliated, let's say, pro-government tabloid that briefly this week had up the figure of 10,000 Russian soldiers killed. Then they brought it down and they claimed that hackers had planted fake news. Mm -hmm. But all of this shows that this is really hitting Russia hard. But I would be cautious about estimating or guessing that the Ukrainian side could actually prevail. I think what we could be looking at is a really long, drawn out stalemate. 
Well, this week, The Economist reported on what remains in Mariupol. One eyewitness says 80 percent of the buildings there are bombed out. David, what discussions are you aware of about how much assistance Ukraine will need simply to make parts of the country habitable again, whether it's being controlled by Moscow or Kiev? Oh, I mean, the needs are going to be almost sort of uh, unimaginable for, for, for these cities that were in, you know, perfectly normal, great shape. And only a month ago, we had the mayor of Mariupol. Remember, that's the town right on the coast that is kind of has the bad luck of being between uh, the Russian held uh, territory of Crimea, which Russia has held since 2014, and these Russian controlled enclaves in the south and the east of Ukraine. And Mariupol, which is Ukrainian held, uh, has the misfortune to be basically you need to take it for the Russians to have a land bridge uh, that would take them from Russia into Crimea and then into their territories in the east of Ukraine. And Mariupol is basically completely surrounded. Uh, it has been shelled and bombed in really appalling ways. Uh, the United Nations has been using satellites to try and see what's been going on. They see, they say that they'd identified at least one mass grave uh, with perhaps 200 people in it. Uh, listeners may remember those awful scenes of the theater that was being used as a shelter in the city of Mariupol, where uh, several hundred people were hiding. Uh, it was bombed, even though it had the word children written in large letters outside uh, in Russian. Uh, that the, the local authorities are saying 300 are dead there. But I think, you know, the idea that we're talking about sort of how to rebuild, we aren't even anywhere near there. And as, uh, as Indira and Dave were saying, the problem is with all of these reports about counteroffensives and this suburb of Kiev, which may have been retaken, uh, this group of Russian forces near the north of Kiev, the capital, which may have been encircled. We just don't know. And, and my colleagues, the economist journalists in Ukraine, tried to go to some of these little suburbs, uh, having heard that they had been taken from the Russians and quickly ran into really heavy combat and had to retreat. And so the situation seems to be much more fluid. But I do think that that uh, briefing that we saw in Moscow today from a major general at the Russian Ministry of Defense that Dave referred to at the beginning, that is potentially, I think, quite significant simply because in this kind of hall of mirrors where everyone is pretending that they've got this many casualties, this town has fallen, this hasn't fallen, for the Russian Ministry of Defense to come out and say, actually, our ambitions may be a lot more modest than we'd originally thought, that we had these two choices uh, as this Major General said, Major General Rudskoy said in this briefing today, that they had two choices. One was a, an operation covering the whole of Ukraine, and one was focused on the Donbass, that Russian-speaking area in the east that's basically been partly Russian-held for several years now. And he's now saying, oh, well, actually, now that might be our focus, is liberating those Russian-held territories completely. And so I think, just as a piece of kind of politics, if Moscow is signaling that potentially their ambitions are lower and that they would settle for something less than the whole of Ukraine, that may be the single strongest piece of evidence we have that something isn't going to plan at all for the Russian military. Indira, what has President Zelensky had to say about any future peace deal, assuming one can be reached? Right. President Zelensky of Ukraine has said that if there is going to be a peace deal with Russia, that he would put any conditions before the Ukrainian people in a referendum. So in other words, he doesn't want to commit in advance to what those conditions would be, although he has said that, um, you know, that, that Ukraine is okay with not joining NATO, which seems to be the number one concern um, that Putin and Russia have. Um, but any other conditions, he's saying, would be put to a referendum. I mean, this is important because, as David Rennie just said, this situation, although it hasn't been an open war until a month ago, um, you know, look back to 2014. 
2014. So it's been almost here eight years since Russia went in, seized Crimea, you know, basically annexed a part of a very important and strategic part of Ukraine's territory, had Russian-backed forces um, in the separatist areas of Luhansk and Donetsk in southeast Ukraine. So this is not a new situation where Russia has been trying to extend its power here. And I think that Zelensky um, is saying, you know, yes, we we could make some compromises, but uh, the people of Ukraine would have to agree to them. But what would a referendum look like under these circumstances, Indira, briefly, with, with so many millions of people displaced? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good point. We have the figures now this week that 3.5 million Ukrainians are now refugees, that half of all Ukrainian children have been displaced from their homes. The numbers are staggering. It's the biggest refugee crisis in Europe since World War II. The United States with Joe Biden this week in uh, Europe talking to NATO partners and, uh, you know, G20 partners has given, has pledged 100,000 Ukrainians can come to the U.S. as refugees and a billion dollars in aid. But you're absolutely right. How do you get people to participate in a referendum when they're war refugees? Let's stay with the Russian invasion of Ukraine for the moment. Dave, Axios was the first to report this week that a bipartisan group of U.S. senators is working with the Treasury Department to try to lock down Russian gold. It's a stockpile worth $132 billion. What more can you tell us? Yeah, so gold is estimated to uh, to be one quarter of the Russian reserves. And you'll remember that the U.S. has already gone after Russia's central bank reserves, its, its cash in foreign denominations. And so uh, these senators and the Treasury are looking for ways to tighten those sanctions and ensure that Russia doesn't have ways around them. And one of those ways uh, would be for them to trade in gold, which is uh, harder to track and harder to enforce sanctions on. We've seen countries like Venezuela in the past that are under heavy sanctions use gold in order to continue to trade uh, with countries. So this meeting this week was about ways uh, to make sure that that gold can be frozen in the same way that the cash reserves are being frozen. Well, President Biden arrived in Europe on Wednesday. He met NATO leaders yesterday, and today he's visiting Poland. And during his stop in Brussels, Belgium, Biden committed to new sanctions against Russia and humanitarian aid to Ukrainians besieged by the war. Here's President Biden responding to questions on whether these latest sanctions will force Vladimir Putin to think any differently about his actions in Ukraine. Sanctions never deter. You keep talking about that. Sanctions never deter. The maintenance of sanctions, the increasing the pain, and the demonstration why I asked for this NATO meeting today is to be sure that after a month we will sustain what we're doing, not just next month, the following month, but for the remainder of this entire year. That's what will stop him. David, so far, what effect have sanctions had? Well, they're going to take time to bite. And I think listeners, you know, may think, well, hang on, haven't we heard about sanctions against Iran, against North Korea? And, you know, the North Koreans still seem to have nuclear weapons. So maybe, you know, there's a certain sense of sanctions fatigue, because it seems to be the weapon of choice that you reach for as the West if you don't want to actually send troops. If you listen to diplomats uh, from America, from the European Union, and I've been talking to them here in Beijing about this, because China is also a player in this, in this, to some extent, because China's Russia's potential best friend with deep pockets, they're saying these sanctions are different. We really should believe that the way that they have been designed, things that they have done this time that have never been tried before, like sanctioning the Russian central bank, as Dave said, 
uh, which really, you know, chokes off Putin's ability to access the hundreds of billions of dollars worth of cash and gold that he'd stored up precisely against the idea of being sanctioned again. The pressure that the Americans are putting on their allies in Europe to say that they will not buy Russian oil and gas. I mean, at the moment, the Europeans can't do that because the pressure is very different seen from Washington compared to how it's seen from European capitals. Because, you know, as a simple fact, if you're an American, your home is not heated in the winter by Russian gas. But many, many, many tens of millions of Europeans, their homes are heated in the winter right now by Russian gas. And so it's a much bigger step. But there is a feeling that although these are building slowly, that the Russians really are extremely spooked about what these sanctions could do, because they've been designed you know, with with in mind, how do we design sanctions that will be different from anything we've tried before? And I think what's really revealing is my colleagues uh, from The Economist who are reporting, talking to the negotiators on the Ukrainian side, who have been dealing with the Russian negotiators, even though those peace talks have not been going well, one of the things that they've said every time is that the Russians are obsessed with getting the sanctions lifted, that it's one of their absolute top demands, not just that uh, Ukraine should never join NATO, that it should be neutral, that Russia gets to keep this bit of territory or that bit of territory, but they want to know that the sanctions will be lifted as soon as possible. And again, I think, you know, in this hall of mirrors where we don't know what to trust, if the Russians seem to be desperate to avoid those sanctions, that's at least a piece of evidence that maybe they will impose real pain and make Vladimir Putin pay a price for this war of choice. And let's not forget this idea that he had to to, to invade Ukraine to defend his country from an existential threat, which is what Vladimir Putin says, is nonsense. It's historical nonsense, and it's and it's a wicked lie. And he is going to pay a very high price potentially for this war of choice that he launched and he alone. We got this comment from Robert in Michigan who says, I totally understand why we aren't imposing a no-fly zone, but I don't understand why we won't let Poland give the Ukraine planes that would be flown by Ukrainian pilots. I don't see the difference between planes and drones. Dave, explain a little bit more about how the Biden administration is deciding what military aid to send to Ukraine and, and what military aid they're holding back. Right. So the planes have been a particularly contentious issue. The Biden administration argues uh, that they would not meaningfully change the equation in Ukraine, that Ukraine still has a lot of planes at its disposal and that they don't think these Polish uh, Soviet era planes uh, would actually change the equation. But they're also quite worried about the idea that by supplying planes, it would bring them closer to being uh, an active combatant in this war, or at least a, you know, a party to this conflict. And they're trying to avoid, they're trying to walk a very fine line. And, and as Robert pointed out, you know, what is the difference between providing uh, these kamikaze drones we're going to be sending versus sending manned aircraft. Uh, But there is a bit of a hitch on the aircraft side as well. The Poles were willing to give up those planes, but they wanted to hand them over to the U.S. first, have us have them at a base in Germany, and then have either they be flown from Germany straight into the conflict in Ukraine uh, or some other formulation that makes sure that the Russians see the U.S. as the party that's contributing those planes. So the Poles were worried as well. It wasn't just so clear-cut that they wanted to give these planes and we said no. Uh, but again, we're try- the Biden administration is trying to give as much military aid as they can without somehow crossing a line uh, that makes Russia, you know, either try to take those out in transit uh, or hit the U.S. in some kind of asymmetric way. And, And we should say that the Russians have said 
that they view weapon shipments as legitimate targets, even if they're not yet in Ukraine. Now, we don't know if they would hit those shipments while they're, say, in Poland. That would be a huge escalation that would bring NATO into the fray. Uh, But the Russians have said that. So that's another thing to watch. Well, Indira, we've been hearing a lot about fears over further escalation by Vladimir Putin. And some will remember the argument over the use of chemical weapons and, and red lines drawn by the White House back when President Obama was in office. What parallels are you seeing between what happened then and the fears being expressed over the use of chemical weapons now? Huge parallels. Remember that President Obama, this was, you know, at the height of the Syrian crisis, which let's not forget is still going on, um, you know, said that there would be a red line. Essentially, he drew a red line saying if Syria uses, if Assad uses chemical weapons against his people, that's a red line. But when that actually came to pass, the United States was not at that time willing to take action. And so it was seen, it was a very harsh blow against um, Obama's credibility globally because it was seen as the U.S. wasn't willing to back up its words. Now, that said, you know, the U.S. eventually took various ways of striking back at Syria, um, both under the Obama administration and under the Trump administration for the use of chemical weapons. But there wasn't a huge U.S. Intervention that happened. So Joe Biden, who was of course Barack Obama's vice president, is being very careful in the way he's talking about it. He hasn't used the words "red line." He hasn't been specific about what actions he would take. What he has said is that the U.S. would respond in a proportionate way, depending on what happens. So he's left open some, you know, strategic um, ambiguity there. And in fact, French President Macron, when he was asked about this by his press corps, specifically said, we want to leave open strategic ambiguity. We don't want to be very clear. But also Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, has warned that the problem of any use of chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons by Russia in Ukraine is that this could have ripple effects on neighboring states who are NATO states. Well, Think let's, about let's Poland. Hear, let's hear right. from Jens Stoltenberg now. He had this to say on Thursday. We are concerned partly because we see the rhetoric and we see that Russia is trying to create some kind of pretext accusing Ukraine, United States, NATO allies for preparing uh, to use chemical and biological weapons. And we have seen before that this uh, way of accusing others is actually a way to create a pretext for do the same themselves. So how would a chemical attack change NATO's calculation about the war, Indira? I think it would change it very significantly because, as we've talked about, I mean, uh, President Biden is in Poland today right at the border of Ukraine. Um, Any kind of chemical or biological weapon could waft right over the border. The same is true of any nuclear attack, of course. Um, But, you know, remember, Article 5 in NATO means an attack on one is an attack on all. And that's exactly why the United States and other NATO leaders are trying to be so careful. They don't want to get drawn into a World War III. They don't want to enforce a no-fly zone because then that would be direct conflict between Russia and NATO. Uh, NATO has already have moved 40,000 troops to the eastern flank of the NATO alliance. I mean, this is a huge deal. They are definitely reinforcing the eastern flank. And don't forget, there's a country that has a more than 1,000-kilometer border with Russia that's not part of NATO. That's Finland. And Finns are 
now, according to all polls, very enthusiastic about entering NATO, which they haven't done all these decades because of neutrality. So in some ways, this is very much, in many ways, this is backfiring on Putin because he's making the rest of Europe much more nervous and standing at the edge there. Uh, And I just want to make a further point about sanctions, which is sanctions take time to work. And even the central bank sanctions, um, back in 2015, in the run-up to the Iran nuclear deal, I was a State Department correspondent covering sanctions on Russia over the Crimea annexation, sanctions on Iran that took years um, to take effect, even though the U.S. sanctioned the Iranian central bank and also, you know, Europeans did as well. So it's not something that can happen overnight, these sanctions. And, And as David Rennie said, the European continent is still very much dependent on Russian gas. They're now, Russia's now demanding that Europe pay for its natural gas in rubles, which European leaders have refused to do. The U.S. has said it's going to increase liquefied natural gas exports to Europe by at least 15 billion cubic meters this year, but it's not going to get over there fast enough um, to, you know, (laughs) to alleviate the situation that Europe is still propping up Russia by paying for natural gas every single day. On Tuesday, a Russian court sentenced the opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, to an additional nine years behind bars. And the trial has been roundly criticized by human rights organizations as politically motivated. Here's Ned Price, spokesperson for the State Department. We note with grave concern that the court's sham ruling is the latest in a series of attempts to silence Navalny and other opposition figures and independent voices who have been critical of Russian authorities, including Navalny's near-fatal poisoning with a nerve agent by Russian security services in 2020. Uh, We demand his immediate and unconditional release. David, remind us, why was Navalny in court again? So this is all, uh, this is kind of round sort of two or three of an attempt to silence uh, Alexei Navalny by putting him in prison for these, what his uh, team calls completely trumped up fraud charges. It's about money that was donated by supporters uh, to his anti-corruption foundation. He is accused of uh, stealing that money to to keep it short. He's already in prison on a two and a half year prison sentence, which was slapped on him when he returned uh, to Russia uh, uh, and uh, after his poisoning uh, when he went to Germany for treatment. If you remember, he was poisoned uh, during an election campaign. Uh, He's now been uh, sentenced, at least initially, to nine years, although prosecutors had actually asked for a longer sentence of 13 years. uh, And they may come back and appeal and try and get him locked up for longer. But this is about silencing Alexei Navalny. So not only has he got another nine years on this trumped up fraud charge, uh, his new prison is much further from Moscow. It's very remote. That makes it harder for his lawyers, for his family to visit him. And until now, remarkably, in his first kind of year of his sentence in this prison, relatively close to Moscow, every time his lawyers meet him, he gives them a statement. They put it on his Twitter account, his Instagram account, his Facebook account. And so he has still been a thorn in the side of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin. Now, however, this comes not just at a time where Navalny is on trial in this makeshift courtroom in his prison, but also remember that the Russian government just banned uh, Facebook and Instagram, so Russians now can't access those social media. And so this is silencing Navalny, and then he's going to be sent away further. I mean, even to the level of detail, if you want to know that this really is about silencing the most prominent critic that Vladimir Putin still has, uh, when Navalny's lawyers left this makeshift courtroom in the prison outside Moscow, they started talking to the, the journalists outside and were promptly detained by the police and driven off in a police truck. And they were released later. But this is about trying to silence his voice. But the problem is that now you have these new laws. 
uh, passed by the Russian parliament and hardened this week even further, that it's uh, illegal and you can be punished with a 15-year prison sentence uh, for saying that what is happening in Ukraine is a war or an invasion. And now any action taken by the Russian government overseas is also covered by the same law, which is supposedly an anti-fake news law. And so there is a sense that in addition to the human tragedy of this, this man, Alexei Navalny, who was poisoned, nearly died, his life was saved by German doctors, he's then put in prison. There is a sense that his avenues to sort of get his message out are all being crushed by this kind of new wave of absolute totalitarian uh, sort of censorship and control imposed by Vladimir Putin on his own country. Well, in an interview with CNN's Christiane Amanpour on Tuesday, President Putin's chief spokesperson repeatedly refused to rule out that Russia would consider using nuclear weapons against Ukraine. Here's one of those responses from Dmitry Peskov. We've been trying to convey our concerns to the world for a couple of decades, but no one would listen to us. We have a concept of uh, domestic security. It's public. You can read all the reasons for nuclear arms to be used. Dave, we talk a lot about red lines, but you have to wonder what the response would be to such an attack, not just by the West, but also by those closest to Putin in Moscow. We've already seen one of his main advisors quit this week. Right. So uh, Peskov did say that if, if Russia faced an existential threat, then nuclear weapons would be on the table. We certainly have to take seriously this idea. I think that uh, we sh- we certainly shouldn't uh, view it as a high probability in the near term. There has been some talk about the idea of whether Putin would use tactical nuclear weapons, smaller yield nuclear weapons on the battlefield. I, I hope uh, and believe that the Russian side understands that that would be, uh, uh, you know, bring this war into a whole new dimension and would very likely engender a response uh, from the U.S., from Western countries. Although, you know, uh, we all know that he's sitting on quite a large pile of nuclear weapons and nobody wants to get into a scenario where uh, nuclear weapons are on the table uh, inside Ukraine or worst case beyond Ukraine. Um, But obviously uh, that would be a whole new chapter to this war and one that I think we all hope we never reach. Another blow to women's rights in Afghanistan this week. The Taliban announced that they would reopen high school for boys and girls on Wednesday. But that promise was quickly stripped away for hopeful young women who showed up and were sent home at some schools. Christina Goldbaum joined 1A earlier this week. She's a reporter in Kabul for the New York Times. She said this is what the anticipated reopening meant for one family and their youngest daughter. Two weeks ago, I was talking to a family um, that had many daughters that had six daughters. The youngest daughter um, was about to go into her final year of high school, right when the Taliban seized power. And for her, she was saying that, you know, even if I'm able to actually return to school when they're supposed to reopen um, later this month, she just said that she didn't see the point anymore. She felt depressed. You know, she thought that even if I go, even if I work as hard as I can, I could graduate top of my class and it just won't matter because I won't be able to, you know, go on to university here or study medicine or become a doctor like she had dreamed to for her entire life. That's Christina Goldbaum with The New York Times. She was part of our conversation on what the war in Ukraine means for Afghans facing a growing famine. The U.N. says nearly 95 percent of Afghans aren't getting enough to eat. We also heard from two of the 76,000 Afghan refugees who made it to the U.S. after the Taliban took over more than six months ago. That followed a U.S. military exit after 20 years of war. You'll find that conversation online at the1a.org. Indira, what reason did the Taliban give for rolling back on this reopening? 
Yeah, this is a really sad story because schools, uh, you know, have been closed or faced restrictions ever since the Taliban seized power nationwide in August. And there had been this promise um, that this was supposedly going to be in a new and improved Taliban 2.0 who are going to allow girls to go back to school. And we saw that this was crushed, that anyone older than sixth grade, um, girls were turned away this week. And there were scenes of crying and disappointment and angry parents all across the country country. This is an incredibly sad story. And it, you know, the argument they gave, the excuse they gave was that they still have yet to make a ruling about which uniforms girls must wear. Now, what I have to say about this is that having um, been in Afghanistan for the fall of the Taliban, um, remember throughout the, in, in the late 90s when the Taliban were in power, there was no girls' education at all at any level. Um, in 2001, after the fall of the Taliban and into 2002, when schools started reopening, it was just one of the most joyous stories to cover, um, seeing girls' schools opening all over the country. Even then, uh, the, the uniforms that girls wore were very conservative. Um, they weren't in burqas, but they had hijab, you know, you know, headscarves or scarves covering their hair. So it's not as if they're walking around, you know, not being covered anyway. So I think what this really hides is that there is a fight within the Taliban leadership between those who want to allow girls to go to school, probably for cynical reasons that they want international aid. And foreign countries have said, we're not going to give you aid unless you give rights to women, and uh, those in the Taliban leadership who are more hardline and who don't care about the aid and just don't want to give girls and women any rights at all. So it's chaotic. It's last minute. It really makes clear that there are divisions within the group. Um, and, you know, I saw a lot of Afghan women leaders Um, you know, very sadly and sarcastically saying, how could they possibly make the dress more conservative? This is just an excuse to keep women under their thumb. Dave, more broadly, what's been the status of women's rights under the Taliban since they seized power? Well, I think Indira really uh, put the uh, nail on the head when she talked about how there is a split inside uh, the Taliban because, you know, depending on what you read, you could think that this is a a, a new Afghanistan, a much different one than we saw in the 90s under the Taliban. Um, You know, we have seen, I I spoke to a female aid worker who talked about the fact that uh, she was actually able to to work relatively freely. And she attributed that to the fact that, first of all, uh, there needs, you know, Afghanistan needs aid perhaps more than any other country in the world right now, uh, but also that they want to be seen externally uh, as, you know, uh, a country that other countries should be willing to work with. But um, you know, again, women are, are not back in school. Girls are not back in school. Um, we have heard, uh, you know, sort of sporadic anecdotal reports uh, of repression against women in various uh, towns and cities. I'm not sure that it's entirely consistent, the enforcement across the country, which again speaks to the fact that we need to keep paying attention uh, to Afghanistan because right now the Taliban does have an incentive uh, to at least show more flexibility about the treatment of women because they do need aid. They do want international recognition. And so as long as the spotlight stays on Afghanistan, the outlook for women uh, may be a little bit less bleak uh, than it otherwise would be. Well, David, what is the likelihood that the Taliban will ever be formally recognized by the international community? 
some pretty powerful countries that would like to recognize them if they just behave a little bit better, starting with the giant neighbor that I'm in right now, China. So China has a very strange relationship with the Taliban. You know, the Chinese are locking up uh, Muslims in their own uh, region of Xinjiang, just across the border from Afghanistan. The Chinese knock down mosques, they lock up imams. And you might imagine that that would not make them natural soulmates of the Taliban. But the Chinese are all about stability. Uh, and they're all about trade routes, and they're all about offering money and business. And so the Taliban and the Chinese actually get on surprisingly well. The Taliban are desperate for investment, they're desperate for roads and infrastructure, and they're desperate for international recognition, which is not just because they want to have ambassadors and, and go to sort of embassy drinks parties. Uh, it's because there is billions and billions of dollars of aid that currently can't easily be distributed because of the sanctions. Uh, the central bank doesn't operate properly at the moment because they're not recognized as a government by anyone. So they have this enormous incentive. And there are lots of neighbors who do not want a failed state in Afghanistan, which is in that unbelievably strategic position, no matter if it's also a desperately miserable humanitarian situation. It is also has always been this kind of cockpit uh, of kind of geopolitics and great sort of games between nations. And so you have the Chinese, you have the Pakistanis, uh, you have Central Asian neighbors who would all like to see a stable, secure, at least peaceful Afghanistan. So they have big incentives to try and nudge the Taliban into behaving just well enough to be recognized as a government. And that's in actually, frankly, a lot of countries' interests. And I think it speaks to the fanaticism in parts of the Taliban, that despite that enormous incentive to just let girls go to school, they're still arguing about even that step when there are such enormous rewards for them to just take that very symbolic step. Because remember, you know, we've been talking about letting girls go to school in Afghanistan throughout the American uh, military occupation of Afghanistan over 20 years. And Indira, just remind us right now about the economic and humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Oh, well, the toll is huge. I mean, we're talking about actual starvation, um, you know, because of the collapse of aid. Remember, the Afghan government under first Hamid Karzai and then under Ashraf Ghani was highly dependent on international aid. And uh, with the Taliban having taken over and the international community having had to withdraw aid for that reason, um, it was a really bad winter in Afghanistan, which, by the way, still continues. It's not quite over yet. We're just entering spring. Um, so there's been a lot of starvation and suffering. The human toll is enormous. Enormous, And as you were saying on your earlier show this week, I mean, the Ukraine crisis is just another crisis that is taking attention away from the Afghan refugees and the hunger crisis happening there. So just because one war starts in a new region doesn't mean that the aftermath of a war and humanitarian suffering doesn't still exist um, very much in a place where the U.S. was for 20 years. Well, let's turn now to Myanmar. The U.S. sent a strong signal to, to the international community on Monday, officially recognized, recognizing rather that Myanmar has committed a genocide of Rohingya Muslims. Dave, how long has this been happening and what do we know about the abuse and treatment people have faced? Yeah, so this began back in 2016. This is a systemic campaign by the military uh, in Burma against the. Uh, it's a it's a majority Buddhist country. The genocide is against uh, a Muslim minority group. Um, over well, around a million people have been forced out of the country. Villages were burned. There are truly horrific accounts uh, of what these uh, Rohingya Muslims went through. 
during this uh, offensive by the military. The U.S. the U.S. had not recognized it as a genocide, uh, though you know human rights groups had pretty broadly come to that conclusion some time ago. Uh, and so this is the U.S. now. And you'll remember there was also a coup uh, in Burma. So the military has now taken control. The U.S. has no real partners in the capital. And so perhaps it's a bit easier to make this designation uh, of a genocide. But yes, it was uh, several years in the making. Indira, what message does this declaration send to the rest of the international community? How significant is it? Uh, You know, that's the most important question, really, because this is the eighth time that the United States has issued a formal genocide declaration. The last one before this was um, in the sort of waning days of the Trump administration. Um, Mike Pompeo, then Secretary of State, um, declared that the Chinese treatment of the Uyghurs um, in Xinjiang province, which David Rennie referred to earlier, was genocide. But the real question is, what does that mean? You can call something genocide. The state Department has had clear evidence of crimes against humanity in Myanmar back since 2018, and they haven't done anything about it. So, okay, it's taken them these years to, you know, put their ducks in a row and say that they're willing to call it genocide, but what will the actual consequences be? And remember, it's not just the military who was involved in this, but the de facto civilian leader at the time was um, Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel laureate. Um, woman who was a longtime freedom fighter for her country um, and has now been arrested in this military crackdown. But she never denounced the crackdown on the Rohingya and, in fact, was seen as, in her own way, encouraging it. So, you know, it, it really asks the question, you can declare something a genocide, what are you actually going to do about it? There need to be consequences if we're to take these kinds of declarations seriously. The Organization of Islamic Cooperation actually filed legal action against Myanmar at the International Court of Justice back in 2019. But again, we're not seeing consequences for Myanmar. Remember, the United States in recent years had actually removed sanctions against Myanmar because of its process towards democratization, which you know, was reversed a year ago with this military coup. I just think there are so many hot fires burning right now that the United States is trying to deal with in its foreign policy. Um, Yes, they can declare this a genocide, but it's not the top of their most urgent priorities that they need to deal with now with concrete action. Well, let's end on the news this week about Madeleine Albright. She died Wednesday at the age of 84. She fled the Nazis as a child from what was then Czechoslovakia and was the first woman to serve as U.S. Secretary of State. I'd love to hear how you're each uh, reflecting on Albright's legacy. David? So I, I, I mean, I'm sure lots of people in, in, in your studio and NPR met her. I had the honor of meeting her after she became Secretary of State. And in particular, um, she wrote an amazing book in 2018, Defining Fascism. And she had real credentials for defining fascism because she had fled fascism of the right with the Nazis and then a fascism of the left uh, with the Soviets uh, invading Czechoslovakia. And as a graduate, as a, as a professor at Georgetown University, you know, then 80 years old, she asked her students, her graduate students, let's define fascism. And when she discovered that they weren't entirely sure what it meant, she wrote this really brilliant book about what is a fascist, talking about why she thought Putin had it in him to become one, but was not yet one, sort of sprinkling in amazing anecdotes about meeting uh, Kim Jong-il, the then dictator of North Korea, noting that they had the same height, high heels, because he was a very short man and vain. Um, she was an extraordinary figure, sort of, uh, not only the first Secretary of State, but, you know, the credibility she had as an eyewitness to the worst crimes of the 20th century and then the lessons that she openly drew from that 
when she became America's top diplomat. Dave, what about for you? Yeah, I was talking to my colleague, uh, Jen Koons, who's working on a book about women in diplomacy. And of course, Madeleine Albright is right at the center uh, of any uh, such account. And she was telling me about the work that Madeleine Albright has been doing even recently into her 80s. Uh, she was actually meeting over Zoom with uh, female diplomats in Afghanistan prior to the fall of Kabul, giving them sort of advice and counseling as they were taking part in these intra-Afghan negotiations. So uh, certainly she'll be remembered for her work in the Clinton administration, but she was active uh, long after that. And Dara, just about a minute left here. I'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I um, was able to meet and interview Madeleine Albright several times uh, after she was Secretary of State. I met her once on a trip to China when she was Secretary. But, um, you know, the eight years I spent at the State Department were under other secretaries, but she remained a really strong force in influencing both Hillary Clinton and John Kerry in their years as Secretaries of State. And I think one of the things she'll be most remembered for is how she mentored an entire generation of women in leadership in the global stage. So not only was she a mentor to Hillary Clinton, who followed in her steps as a female Secretary of State, also to Susan Rice, who was U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, also to um, Wendy Sherman, who's now the Deputy Secretary of State. So a number of high-profile American diplomats learned from her, and she really dedicated a lot of her career um, from the time that she graduated from Wellesley to when she rejoined the workforce at the age of 39. In those years, she really dedicated herself to um, shaping and mentoring women as leaders on the global stage. And I think that's a real contribution she made that will live on long beyond her. That's Indira Lachmanan, Senior Executive Editor for National Geographic. Also with us today, David Rennie, Beijing Bureau Chief for The Economist, and Dave Lawler, World News Editor for Axios. Thanks to you all. Chris Castano is 1A's Digital Editor. Our managing producer is Paige Osborne. Our senior producer is Jonquilin Hill. Mike Kidd is our sound engineer. And Barb Angiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. This is 1A.